Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs. And I'm Cody Sims. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. We appreciate you tuning in, sharing this episode, and if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guest is Matt LaDuke, CEO and co-founder of Forum Mobility, which is working on the problem of heavy-duty trucking electrification, starting in California with the drayage sector. I didn't know anything about drayage before speaking with Matt, and I don't want to give too much of a spoiler here in my intro, but it turns out that in trucking, you have long-haul or over-the-road trucking, which is transporting goods over long distances. If you've ever done a cross-country road trip, the semi-trucks on the interstates are long-haul trucks. And then there are drayage trucks. These trucks take large cargo containers from seaports to distribution centers and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. These typically short distances and repeatable patterns make them especially good targets for electrification as they're relatively densely clustered and predictable nature is a good thing when it comes to planning where to build EV charging facilities for them that can provide the amount of power that these trucks command. It also turns out that California has some aggressive emissions reduction regulations coming online that should dramatically escalate the transition of drayage trucks from diesel to electric. Matt and I have a great conversation about the pending California Air Resources Board regulations at play, as well as the history of clean air regulation around trucking. We talk about the air quality issues surrounding most ports and the environmental justice issues that these regulations are aiming to address, on top of the climate change and greenhouse gas emission issues. We also talk about how the vast majority of drayage truck owners are independent operators and the real-world financial burden that these regulations place on them. I could literally see the future political talking points playing out during our discussions, and these are very real and very difficult considerations. And we talk about Forum Mobility's product offering and company history in addition to Matt's deep background in renewable energy. I'm grateful to Matt for coming on the show and hope you enjoy the discussion. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cody. Good to be here. So normally I wouldn't do this with a startup because every startup absolutely is building a business that stands on its own no matter what. But with Forum Mobility, it seems like you have some incredible regulatory tailwinds that are starting to blow your way. And from the reading I did on them, it feels like understanding the scope of those regulations actually might help all of us get our heads more around the business that you're building and the opportunity in front of you. So at the expense of jumping straight into Wonk, I wonder if you could take a minute here at the outset and describe what's going on as it relates to California and decarbonizing the trucking industry. Yeah, it certainly is a regulatory world that we live in at Forum Mobility. And so everybody's probably seen what California's done around mandating the sale of electric vehicles. Furthermore, they've mandated that certain fleets start to convert and that those fleets are essentially based on, on their carbon and NOx emissions. There's one particular segment of the fleet that's gotten a lot of attention and justifiably so in California and that's drayage, and that's what we focus on. And so what California is doing is they're trying to pull the oldest and dirtiest trucks out, and they're trying to pull those out, in the case of drayage, out of communities that have 
historically the worst air. And so drayage is the movement of those containers out of the port to the distribution center. So if you've been to the Bay Area or if you're down in LA around the Long Beach LA port complex, you'll see all those containers on the backs of those trucks moving your, your containers to the Walmart, Amazon, Target, Nike distribution centers, et cetera. What happens there is that around those ports, you have these choke points where there's 33,000 trucks in California registered to do drage. And so those trucks are going in and out of these terminals at the port. So they're going through these really congested areas. And the Air Resource Board, or CARB, or ARB, as it's called a lot in California, has really focused on this. And so Governor Newsom in California mandated that drayage turn over 100% to zero emission by 2035. Moreover, that it starts turning over vehicles starting in 2024 on a mandated basis. So thousands of vehicles will be forced to become zero emission as dictated by the age of the engine. Do I understand that with drayage, a truck actually has to be registered as a drayage truck to enter into these ports in the first place? So you, you essentially have a choke point on what trucks can even go in and out of these places. Is that correct? That's exactly right, Cody. Yeah. If you are Cody Sims Trucking, you would have to register your truck with the Air Resource Board or ARB in California. And once you're on that drayage registry, you are allowed to go in and out of ports. Is that a sec- for security reasons or what's the underlying rationale for that? Do you have a sense? It started, to the best of my knowledge, around the 2008 clean truck plan. And so back in 2008 was the first wave that the ARB started to force older and dirtier trucks. And if you remember when I was a kid in California, the belching stacks of trucks down the 880 freeway in Oakland where I was born, that was really commonplace. And what the ARB started, and I don't know when they started the drayage registry, but I know the drayage registry first kind of had the hammer thrown down on old dirty trucks back in 2008. And that's when they said anything that was a 1997 model engine or older had to go that it couldn't go in the port. And that was in direct response to all that particulate matter coming out and going into West Oakland and Wilmington and whatnot. And so step one was trying to reduce smog and step two is trying to reduce carbon emissions. Then it sounds like is sort of the playbook. I don't know if they've been intentionally following, but where they found themselves today. That's right. And so starting next year, if you have a 2009 model engine or older, you won't even be able to access the ports. And then under the proposed clean fleet rules, that's one of the ARB's programs, is that starting in 2024, all the trucks that fall off the registry have to be replaced by zero emission trucks. And again, I'll give you like a crazy stat that we had an intern dig up a few stats on air quality. And this was the one that stuck out in my mind as being something that really was pretty sad to hear is that if you live in Wilmington, California, which is the community directly next to the port of LA and Long Beach complex, you have a 98% higher likelihood of contracting cancer than if you live in the broader LA basin. And that's with 17, 20,000 trucks going in and out of that area every day, idling, waiting. And if you've ever gone down to that complex, you'll see the thousands and thousands of trucks just waiting. And that's what the ARB and the governor's executive order have been fighting to mitigate is that really bad air quality that happens in and around the ports. That is absolutely awful. And obviously good to hear that there are changes afoot. It sort of underscores to me the dual role that environmental justice and emissions reduction or climate change often play, where they they have 
kind of separate goals, right? The environmental justice goal herein being let's remove air quality that is poor locally, meaning the smog has a distribution footprint of it that is causing cancer, causing particulate matter to go into the air. And then the emissions problem is a global problem, right? Like it doesn't matter if the CO2 or the methane or the NOx is emitted in Long Beach or in Buenos Aires, it's causing a problem no matter what. But it's interesting to hear that this plan is presumably trying to solve both of them. I imagine there are some tensions between those two as often tends to come up. Is that indeed true? Yeah, this is a really interesting issue. Let's put it that way, is that it's absolutely appropriate like in every way, shape and form to have clean air, no matter where you live in the year 2022. So West Oakland, Wilmington, they are entitled to clean air. The flip side of that is that when you look at that drayage registry, those 33,000 trucks, 80% of those trucks are owner operators, they're independent truckers. And so we have thousands and thousands of small businesses in this state. This holds true for every state. The vast majority of dray operators are very, very small mom and pop shops. And a lot of those mom and pop shops, they saved up, they bought a truck, they went independent, they run their own business, and they like it that way. How much does a typical tractor trailer cost? Well, until recently, we were looking at 40,000, 50,000, and that's since doubled in advance of some of these regulations that anybody who can get an in-compliance truck, those are, those are running up in value immensely these days. And what is a zero emissions tractor trailer going to look like it will cost? MSRP, between three hundred and dollars and $450,000. And so it's a wide distance between these two trucks. And when you think about the mom and pops out there who saved up, they bought a truck. They often bought a truck in response to the last clean truck program in 2008. And so they got themselves maybe a 2009 truck and they've run a successful business. The typical life on these is 20 years, give or take? 800,000 million miles or so. So it depends on how much you're driving it, but they get worked a lot and they can be used for a long time. And yeah, these small businesses have gone out, they've built a business, they've been running containers and doing that for a long time. And now they're being forced to convert. And so what you see now is that when you read about the Dre operators who are converting, it's the big, well-capitalized groups. It's NFI, it's TTSI, and there's these big port trucking operators who have a bunch of analysts. They have capital. They're riding through this transition. And what's going to happen if there isn't a program and incentive structure and some well-thought-out regulatory and incentives is that what happens in a lot of transitions is that the little guy gets left behind. And so while on one hand, you have this environmental justice force of clean air in and around the ports and the collective need to decarbonize, you have that really fighting the economic justice. You have a lot of small businesses who have done a great job building up their book and, and making a living. And now they're being forced. You know, This isn't an optional conversion at this point. They're being forced. And who do you think has the oldest and dirtiest trucks? it's usually the least capitalized. And so in California, it's a really tricky problem because we need it, the environment needs it, but we also need to do right by the folks who are around the small businesses and moving our goods and supply chain. Trucks from an emissions perspective are significant amount of tailpipe emissions, right? So we've got, I think vehicle tailpipe emissions 
something like trucks are less than 5% of total vehicles on the road, but a quarter of the tailpipe emissions broadly. Is that right? Yeah, like seeing 25, 30% of emissions are coming out of the heavy duty side of things. So they're, yeah, big contributors. And then these drayage trucks, which again are responsible for unloading anything that comes into the country through these ports of call and actually getting it to distribution centers are doing a lot of miles because they are the front end of any goods that are coming into the United States through the ocean, essentially. They're doing a lot of miles. They're not doing nearly as many miles as those over-the-road trucks, which is actually why we at Form Mobility on the battery electric side like them. It's because they do a lot of hours, let's put it that way. If you're a drayage truck driver, you're doing a lot of hours, you're waiting, you're sitting at the port, you're moving containers, but you're going back and forth a lot. And those lanes are sometimes a couple miles. And sometimes if you're taking goods out to the Inland Empire, they're 60 or 70, but they're not the three, four, 500 mile days that some of those over the road truckers need to run every day to make their business work. And most of them, I presume, are basically traveling just to wherever main distribution centers are, whether it's via air, via rail, or via other trucks. Is that the extent of where they go and then they head back? Which again, like you said, from an EV perspective, I presume, makes it easy to anticipate where they're going to need energy and power. Yeah. You can actually, if any of the listeners want to pull up, and you could pull up like Tracy French Camp Manteca, and you could pull up Ontario and just... Google Amazon distribution centers and start zeroing in and you will see the millions and millions of square feet of kind of centralized distribution centers that sit in cities like Lathrop, California, or Ontario, California. They're really consolidated, which which is good. I mean, that's why a lot of truck drivers like being drayage operators is that it's an opportunity to drive a truck and make a living, but also be home every night, which obviously the over-the-road truckers don't get to do that but the dray operators get to go back and forth and be home with their family at night too. So it's a it's an appealing way to make a living for a lot of drivers. Awesome. All right, thanks for setting that context for those of us who aren't deeply involved in both the trucking industry as well as California regulation. And I assume this model isn't just California, like we're talking about California regulation, but this model is anywhere there's a major port in the United States it tends to work according to this drayage model. Is that a correct assumption? Yeah. And all ports have their correlating distribution centers. In California and the West Coast, geographically, it's kind of acutely consolidated. You have mountains and and freeways that push you towards things. I mean, New York is a little bit more spread out where those containers go out of the Newark ports. So the West Coast specifically has a really good back and forth setup geographically and from a freeway standpoint as well. But This model holds true everywhere from Jacksonville to Savannah to Houston to Newark and so on. You have containers that come in and those distribution centers are somewhere within a half a day's drive at the most from those by and large. And the same, the independent operator, the owner operator makeup is also very similar all over this country is that these are not large fleets that move our goods in and out They're They're independent truckers who hook up with logistics firms to get their work. So we're dealing with a setup here where, at least starting in California, these often independently owned and operated trucks that are doing heavy local miles are going to need to start to swap out these vehicles that they bought however long ago, could have been a decade ago, that may still have half their life left. They're going to need to start swapping out these vehicles that maybe they were buying for forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000. Today, if they bought a new one, they may be upward of 80000 and replacing them with 
zero emission vehicles, which to me is means an electric semi-truck, which doesn't wholly exist yet today, but this is supposed to be starting to happen in the next year and a half, if I understand correctly. And these trucks are currently going to be retailing for north of $350,000. How in the world does that happen? I assume this is where forum mobility starts to come into play. So maybe if I've articulated the problem correctly, maybe then jump in with, okay, well, what are these folks going to do? Well, the good news is the trucks do exist. They don't exist in the scale and size that we need yet, but we're actually getting our first three trucks delivered next week to a facility in Long Beach, which is really, really exciting for our small startup of a company. We're going to have our first trucks moving goods in and out of the port of Long Beach here very shortly. But how do we bridge this gap? Like The good news is there's a way to do it, and there's a way to do it economically, that the MSRP of the truck is dramatically assisted by the ARB through a series of programs. The most prominent program is called the HVIP program. It's the heavy duty voucher incentive program. And that pays for about half the capital cost of a truck. So your $350,000, $400,000 truck is then brought down to two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand $250,000 or so, which is more in line with a brand new diesel. A brand new diesel is $150,000, $200,000 as well. So we're kind of reeling it back in. And then you have the cost to operate on the electricity side is already pretty favorable, especially with diesel at six bucks a gallon. California, also the ARB has a program called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard Program or LCFS. And then you start stacking. There's There are so many programs, Cody, that I mean, there's 28 different incentive programs from the California Energy Commission. The new Investor uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, has some transferable charger tax credits. There's just a, a whole bunch of incentives that are not exactly easy to get, but when you start stacking them up and you pool these things together, you can deliver a truck that is fueled with maintenance in a secure lot for less, in many cases, than a diesel truck today. So that that MSRP tag, as big of as a gap it is, is it, when you look at it on a total cost of ownership and you bring in third-party capital, it starts to work quite well. And so is this for mobility's role at least I kind of understand it in two parts, which is one, you help these truck operators secure access to these new vehicles and manage all of these government programs for financing and rebates and this, that, and the other. And secondly, you then actually have created the charge point infrastructure as they're going from A to B to A to B to A to B that helps them power their trucks and have a relationship with you where they know they can come in and get their trucks charged. Am I horridly butchering what your business is. No, you got it pretty close there. At its, at our core is that we are building a network of charging infrastructure. And that charging infrastructure, we are building it for a specific market. And so there's a reasonably good analogy here to kind of contextualize what we do is that we are building a network just like Verizon has built networks. And oftentimes Verizon gives you an iPhone to use on their network. Verizon wants the network. And at the end of the day, that network is the core to that business. And that subscription to that network is the core of that business. And that phone is a vehicle into that network. Our phone, in our case, is a class eight vehicle. We provide that vehicle in many of these early cases. In some cases, there are companies who want to go out and buy their own vehicles, which we think is great. And there's OEMs who have their own leasing functions, which is the right source of capital for that. At the very end of the day, our job as a company is to make this transition accessible to anybody. However, they if they have pride of ownership in the truck, great, we'll help you figure out how to do that. There are additional programs where you can swap an old dirty truck for a new clean truck and get a 
exorbitant amount of money, we can help with that. And so at our core, we want to build that network that you can you can go with your containers between those ports and those distribution centers. We're going to take a short break right now so our partner Yin can share more about the MCJ membership option. Hey folks, Yin here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, back to the show. If I'm an owner operator and I've got three diesel trucks to my business right now, and I am going to move over to this model, I want to understand who the early adopters are that are moving into this model. But it sounded like it's if your trucks are maybe hitting retirement age, you're going to be forced to go to this model. If they're not, I guess you may want to sell them quickly because they're going to rapidly depreciate, or at least that may be the assumption that my diesel powered truck is going to start to lose value, definitely in the drayage space in California, but maybe even over the road over the next decade or so. I don't know if people are necessarily thinking that far ahead yet on the value of the truck side of things. Curious to hear your thoughts on that. I'll be quiet with my speculation. (laughs) Let you jump in and answer, I guess, that. If you're sitting on a 2010 truck today, like Cody's trucking, you're going to make a decision whether you want to quickly get into a compliance diesel. You have about 14 months left to do this under the proposed rules from the ARB that are forthcoming. Do you want to go get yourself a 2016 diesel and buy yourself a few years? That's an option that a lot of people are taking. Alternatively, do you want to jump into the zero emission world and test out a model like ours? And if you do that, you have two options with that truck. What happened during the last clean truck transition in 2008 is a lot of those trucks went to other states that don't have the rules that California has. So a lot of California diesels ended up in Nevada, Arizona, Texas, New Mexico, places like that. And so that's likely what will happen to a lot of the non-compliance trucks. They're going to make their way into another state that doesn't have our restrictions. But yeah, that's what you'd be facing right now if you were sitting on some 2009, 10, 11 trucks is, am I going to give the zero emission thing a try or am I going to get into a compliance diesel and sell my truck down in Texas? So because these are small businesses, these aren't like, they're not making this trade-off based on like some net zero commitment they've made, whatever. It's a mom and pop shop. They're they're making it, it sounds like mostly based on a combination of total cost of ownership of what's the residual value of this thing, this asset I have right now versus the future and trading that off with the cash flow of the economics of diesel fuel versus the economics of paying you or another charge point operator to help me continue to charge these vehicles, assuming I can finance them at an appropriate rate and maybe take the cash flow from the sale of the vehicle and put it toward this program. Am I loosely understanding the economic trade-offs people are making? Yeah. And I think there's something called the beneficial cargo owner that plays an important role. I mean, this is another thing that we really focus on as a company. And so the BCO, the beneficial cargo owner, 
is the Walmart, the Amazon, the Target, the Nike. Those are the ones that own that cargo. And they have a lot of ESG goals. They have a lot of published goals. And this is scope three. And this is something that is kind of the next frontier. And so equally to creating awareness about our value proposition in the trucker market, we need to be collectively as a community spreading the news to those cargo owners because they have a hand in this too. There is a point when a large cargo owner out there is going to put out an RFP and say, oh, no, by the way, we have a strong preference towards zero emission, or we will break all the ties for zero emission, or we will give you 10 points on this 100-point selection scale if you are zero emission. And as those cargo owners start to show up in support of this market, I think it'll help the small businesses who are appropriately skeptical that they feel comfortable jumping in. So that's a big piece of this too. Some of these companies you mentioned are as big as governments and net zero commitment for them is very real. It affects their stock price and the like in in many cases. Do you see them starting to offer incentives to their small business partners who need economic support to continue to make the transition? I see them trying to figure out how they're going to start creating incentives. And that I think everybody is, I mean, one of our board members was telling me, I think there was 48 class eight electric trucks in the United States at the beginning of the year in total. And so I think a lot of these large cargo owners are wanting to see a validation, which we're all going to have. We've already started to see that these are performing well, that the drivers do like them. Anybody who's bought a zero emission truck that we've talked to is thoroughly enjoying it. But justifiably so, if you're moving 500 containers a week out of the port, you want to make sure that you are mandating something that is going to work. And that's going to happen. And I think it's kind of one of those things that has will become more in this case, and that as more trucks move containers and as the cargo owners and the trucking operators and the outfits start to see the success of this, it's going to make people feel a little bit more comfortable saying, I want all these shipments done zero emission or I have a strong bias towards that. So I think we're we're starting to see it as more and more trucks, as we get our first trucks, as a few folks who work similar to us get their first few trucks. And I think it's on, on us to also make sure that we spread the, spread the gospel about the success of those trucks in that we get our operators out there talking about how it's been going with moving goods in a battery electric truck, because I think that gives everybody a little bit more comfort. Everybody is justifiably a little bit nervous about this right now. Yeah. Imagine the first retailer who can legitimately claim that this good has been delivered to you with zero emissions. That doesn't feel particularly close yet, but I guess it's getting closer every day. Yeah. There's a lot. You have ships that go across the Pacific Ocean. You have trucks that move goods out of the ports. You have trains that move goods out of the port. You have the yard trucks that move the containers around the yard at the distribution. Like There's just so much, there's so much to do in that scope three world still yet to happen, but it's coming and it's going to be measured. And it's a really, really important metric for everybody to start keeping a handle on. And so then back to your business at Forum Mobility. So the business model itself is that these trucking companies are paying you then a subscription fee, if I'm understanding correctly, for access to charging and for, are they actually getting a a tractor trailer from you as part of that? What's the overall package tend to look like? Yeah. I mean, again, if you're Cody's trucking, one of the things I would 
go to you and say, is, you know, what lanes are you running and how much are you running freight? And there's a right truck for that. There's trucks that can go a couple hundred miles a day. And a lot of trade operators need that. And there's trucks that go hundred miles a day and they have a smaller battery and therefore they're, they're less expensive. And so putting you in the right truck. And then our model is that we deliver a truck with maintenance in a secure yard that is fully fueled every single morning or evening, whenever you choose to pick that truck up for a fixed price. And is that truck titled to you or is it titled to Cody's Trucking? It's titled to Cody's Trucking. We're going to provide that truck and then you have to title it. You have to insure that truck. You have to have your DOT and a bunch of registration numbers associated with it. But but we can provide the truck and the service at a fixed price and give you some certainty what your next three or five years look like in terms of your operating expenses to plan your business around. And how did you decide in that regard to be the service provider for trucks as opposed to trying to be a giant fleet operator in this world yourselves? Like, it feels like that was a conscious business decision that you all made. I think that at the end of the day, we have to figure out what we're good at as a company and what our customers are good at. Our customers are good at scheduling freight and working with beneficial cargo owners and working with brokers and optimizing their truck routes and hiring either drivers or operators. That's what they're really good at. We're really good at building infrastructure. The team has collectively built over $20 billion worth of infrastructure that we have. We've EPC'd it, we've developed, we've we've constructed it, we've engineered it, procured it, EPC. We've developed it, we've financed it. That's what we're good at. And I think that's what this needs. There's like, when you think about a partnership, you think about putting people who have complementary skills together. In our case, we're not good truckers and we don't plan on being particularly good truckers, but we do plan on being extremely good asset operators and optimizers. I think that's a really good niche for us to fill. And then I would assume large fleets, like owners who have a dozen or more trucks, may be contemplating buying their own charging facilities at their storage yards for their trucks. I don't know if that's the correct assumption, but your answer is, yeah, but if you have one or two or three trucks and you're not going to pay to manage your own charging station, nor is that what you want to spend your time dealing with? Is that also a correct way to think about the problem and the overall set of solutions that you're providing? Yeah, I think that as this all starts and really gets going over the next couple of years, I, I ran distributed generation at Nextera for quite a while. And I can tell you what we talked about at the very beginning of every, we were investing about $500 million a year in distributed generation assets. And without fail, real estate was always the killer of a project in credit. And so if you're trying to put chargers at your facility, you're probably on a lease. You might not be on more than a five or 10 year lease. You're trying to amortize this equipment. You're trying to get a contract with the utility to probably upgrade your service. People don't really appreciate what 450 KW chargers means in terms of that's a lot of power. You're basically building a power plant on your property, aren't you? Yeah. And We've seen it already where a lot of trucks are actually available today, a lot of battery electric trucks, because they were sold to people who wanted to do what's called behind the fence charging. They went out to go explore behind the fence charging. They figured out what a mess it was, and those trucks were then canceled. It's just hard. It's hard to buy. It's hard to build that. It's hard to get the real estate rights. It's hard to monetize incentives. Again, I think there's a huge role for behind the fence, and especially at the beginning, if you're a small trucking outfit and you have the right real estate rights and you have the right setup, like knock off the low hanging fruit. 
because that might be the lowest hanging fruit if you have the culmination of easy ways to transact there. But really quick after that, it's going to have to go to third-party depots. I'll just give you like a quick stat. Of those 33,000 trucks, you need about two and a half gigawatts of charging infrastructure to be built if all of the drage trucks are, are going to go battery electric over the next dozen years or so. And Diablo Canyon was just extended in California as a lifesaver at 2.2 gigawatts. And so the immense amount of charging infrastructure that is going to have to get built for just drage. And that doesn't count all the box trucks. Just drage in just California, just to make sure I understand. Yeah, it's insane how big the charging infrastructure world is going to have to be. And like I said, that doesn't count all your Uber fleets and your box truck fleets and your beer distributor fleets and your municipal fleets and and all the fleets that are going to convert. And the residential consumer vehicles that are going to convert as well. Yeah, it's going to be a big couple decades for our friendly utilities in California to get out ahead of a few things. You've mentioned your background at Nextera. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about your team. How did you get into this business in the first place? We usually start with the founder journey, but I, again, I wanted to really start with the stage setting here, but you've been in the solar world for, gosh, almost two decades, I think, and now are in the trucking and electrification world. So maybe help us understand how that journey got you to where you are. I started off in 2003 at a company called Powerlight. I was a installation supervisor and was up on the roof putting panels in and spent most of the first half of my career on the construction side. Before that, I had been a construction worker. Who was installing solar panels in 2003? I'm curious who your customers were. I will tell you, like Walmart was one of my very first customers. We did a, a whopping 40KW system in Aurora, Colorado. We did Sony and Disney Picture Studios. I did the County of Alameda. And my very first project was the Moscone Center in downtown San Francisco. So it was way back when, which by the way, like at that time, and the reason why this electrification transition is so exciting for us is that when I was hearing about how the funding for those projects were coming together, it's very akin to what's happening now, is that there was some CEC money over here, there was some PGE money over here, there was some County of San Francisco money over, like there was all these forcing functions to help make something economic and you had to grab a pot of money kind of left, right and center to make these things work and synthesize that together. And it's not too dissimilar today in electrification. So you have all these disparate incentive pools. And that's what was happening back in 2003, 4, 5, when I was schlepping solar panels around Northern California. I worked my way through in construction. I ended up at Nextera about 10 years ago at this point and spent a long time there. And just, I think it's probably the single best run company I've ever been a part of or been around. And I loved the time there. I got into the development and investing side there. And just, it was about three years ago when I saw this electrification space. And it just felt, it felt a lot like when I started in solar. And I felt like I maybe arguably had enough competency to take advantage of it myself. And as an opportunity, I have a couple partners, um, Topher Wood, Tom Dotson, and Bobby Batista, who are incredibly more competent than I am. And we thought this was a really fun opportunity to stand something up. We hired Rob Kelly, who runs our sales organization. He was a co-founder of Ampli. We hired Kim Oster, who is a former uh, head of Latin America and chief strategy officer for Cypress Creek. And we've continued to add a lot of folks. Ron Hunt is heading up our Southern California. He's a drayage guy. And so we've put together a really, really cool team, a mighty team of eight <laughs> so far. 
and we're going to double that in the next year or so. So yeah, we just felt compelled. I, I will just say that there's a time that you know that if you don't do something, it's going to stick with you for the rest of your life. It was about a year and a half ago that Topher Wood and I were sitting around having that exact conversation. We need to do something. What the hell are we going to do? What the hell does drayage mean? And then a year and a half later, forum mobility is this now. I know that feeling for sure. It feels almost unfair to ask what's next because there's so much blocking and tackling and such a sounds like such a incredible opportunity just in following this California drayage path over the next five plus years. But where do you see forum mobility growing? Like assuming you get that to a point where it's operationally cranking and we are replacing diesel vehicles with battery electric zero emission vehicles on a daily basis. Where do you see the business expanding into over time? In the near term, our job is to execute. This is kind of a cliche, but I mean, we just have to build good assets and operate them over the next couple of years. But there's nothing about our business model that is specific to drayage. We're focusing on drayage because we can focus on the regulatory, we can focus on the incentives, and we can focus on the customer base that we think has a big impact. But there is absolutely nothing about our business model that can't be replicated in other areas of electrification. And so taking the playbook from NextEra is follow the policy, and that's what we will do. We will continue to lean in on the policy side of things, and we'll figure out where there's going to be a market where we can create value. Because at the end of the day, we will go where we can create value for our customers. We think that that's the only way to scale a business and operate a good business is if we can put people into a vehicle that's going to put money in their pocket. And so that's where we're going to go. And whether that it looks like Forum Marine or Forum Waste or Forum whatever it is, that's where we will take the business after we get this thing right here. Follow the policy is feels to me like such the opposite of advice you hear people give startups. Maybe not really. Maybe the advice that they tell people not to follow is don't look at startups that are dependent on policy happening. But I think what I'm hearing from you is there is already so much policy tailwinds here that you're building a moat for yourself and you can be one step ready for each next new domino that falls in policy to keep expanding and growing the business. I'm curious, you said this is the next era playbook. Maybe unpack that a little bit for me. I'm, I'm really interested to hear more about that. I think anything to do with energy starts at the policy level, and that in this case happens at the state level. And so, again, I mean, we look for scale of policy and we look for scale of programs, and we look for those programs to create an environment where we can create an economic value. And again, I'll use like an analogy of Sunrun. Before they showed up with a PPA, it was just, you know, a bunch of solar panels that cost 15 grand, and somebody had to explain how that was going to make money. And then Sunrun came and they sold 14 cent PPAs where there was 18 cent avoided costs. And that made a lot of sense at that point. Follow the policy is a playbook from NextEra. And it was really just, you know, as we know, the states often drive energy policy, whether it's a renewable portfolio standard or in our case, like the low carbon fuel standard program. And so for us, I mean, I don't think we're this typical startup we are more akin to a renewable developer in terms of the way we're going. And so if you see a shifting market, if ERCOT is going to, to restructure itself in a way that makes standalone storage good, so go get the best sites in the interconnects before that happens. It's not too dissimilar from the way we think about our business and whether it's ISO design or it's state policy, 
it's knowing what's going to happen and where you think the tailwinds are going to occur and then trying to get there before everybody else gets there. And so that, when I say the next era playbook is make sure you spend your time on that stuff. Make sure that you understand that stuff because at some point you're going to need to make a bet. And if you're going to make that bet by the time the policy is in place, you're probably too late. And so that's what I meant by policy. How do you stay on top of it as a small startup? Do you have a policy lead on the team? We have eight policy leads. <laughs> and that actually, we all think about a lot. It's really, really important. We've been fortunate enough to have Adam Browning join as an independent board member and policy consultant. Adam, who put you and I in touch together. So that's fantastic. He's like a 19th degree black belt in renewable policy and just like an incredible person. Kim Oster, we've also brought Will Mitchell on to run origination for us. He spent about seven years at Recurrent heading up policy. He since moved into development and origination role. So all of us have some background in it. And it's just really important that we track it. It's really important that we work with agencies like CalStart or, or groups like CalStart, which is kind of like the SIA of electric trucks and leverage whatever resources we possibly can to stay on top of it. But it's too much for us to handle at this stage, Cody. So we're really focused on a couple states in addition to California, but there's no way we can stay on top of everything right now. Well, thanks for sharing all of that with us. And I think that's an interesting takeaway for any founders who are listening to this who maybe don't have the depth of background and experience that you bring to this space, not necessarily the trucking space, but the energy space, is just to think about how you bring that skill set into your toolkit as a founder in terms of being really on top of where the policy winds are shifting, especially what we've seen happen, I think, in federal policy with the Inflation Reduction Act is just the tip of the iceberg, proverbially, because continued state and local policy is only going to be in all of our futures. At least that's the hope and seemingly reality right now. Well, Matt, you all raised a seed round or you announced a seed round fairly recently led by Obvious Ventures and Homecoming Capital. You had a, a few other participants in there like Edison International and Overture Ventures. Maybe share a little bit about how you mentioned, you know, hey, we don't really necessarily look like a typical startup. We're almost more like an energy development company. How do you think about achieving scale in a way that drives venture type of returns? And do you see venture capital being a continued lever for the business as you grow? Venture was a great place to start. And we needed to do that for a, a, some very specific reasons. And we wanted to do it with somebody like BB, who I've known for going on 15 plus years. I mean, I, just having him as a partner in the business and Pat and Cody at Homecoming have been incredibly helpful investors. So just bringing them into this was just in general, a great thing to do. Going forward, venture isn't going to be the way the business is funded. There's going to have to be a couple different types of financings. We're in the midst of those as we speak right now. And I think we are really fortunate to be in a place where we have a lot of excited capital, both on the private equity and infrastructure side and on the corporate equity side. And so I think that with the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and state policies. There's a lot of capital going towards this. I think the terawatts announcement with a billion dollars with Vision Ridge was great for the segment. EQT backing Volterra is great for the segment. There's plenty of capital. Macquarie going into Inspiration Mobility. There's some really good capital and investors pushing more infrastructure and private equity kind of capital into the space. And so jumping on some permutation of that is where we will be next. And it's pretty exciting time because I think people see 
this transition kind of being renewables 2.0. Well, Matt, I super appreciate you coming on today and sharing your story with us and with the audience here. Anything I should have asked that I didn't, as well as any asks for help that you have for people who are listening who might be interested in what you're working on? I can just tell you one thing that I am so invigorated to be not out of renewables, but into electrification in this space. And I think that there's going to be an awesome opportunity for talent to make its way over into this. And I hope that any of your listeners that are curious about that jump in this space, hit me up at LinkedIn and whatnot. I think it's just going to be a pretty amazing next couple decades. And I'll just kind of go back to this environmental versus economic justice friction that is happening here is that I think the more minds we have thinking about these policies and these programs, the better we're going to be because this is the exact moment where people can get left behind. And we're really concerned about that at Forum. But I think we need more people working and concerned about that because these transitions, as great as they are, there are unintended consequences. And we're on the cusp of one of those now. Thanks so much for your time and for that parting thought. I think that's a really good thing for people to leave today's conversation thinking about and thinking about how they might be able to get involved. So Matt, thanks for sharing what you're up to at Forum Mobility with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Cody. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars, content like this podcast and our weekly newsletter, capital to fund companies that are working to address climate change, and our member community to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode.